Welcome back to the channel. And for those of you listening on the audio feed, this is coming out on the Plenary Session podcast. Plenary Session at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy. I'm here to talk about CONTACT2. CONTACT2 is a new randomized control trial that's out now at GUASCO in my very own city of San Francisco. They're having the convention center just a few blocks from here, and they're celebrating, they're popping bottles. But let's take a look at this study, and let's ask ourselves, what happens when investigators run severely problematic trials? What happens in the field when we run these kinds of studies? Because CONTACT2, I think, is a hugely problematic study. It's a study that is negative towards cancer patients. It's negative towards the people who pay for cancer medicine. It really signifies, I think, so much of what's wrong in medical oncology today, so much of what makes internal medicine residents not want to pursue this field. To me, it feels almost like corruption. So I'm going to present that case to you. Let me walk you through it. So what happens when investigators run bad trials? They get promoted. That's the subtitle of this piece. They get promoted. They actually get, they get a lot of promotions, it turns out. So let's take a look. CONTACT2 is a randomized control trial of cabozantinib, which is a pan-TKI, and atezolizumab in metastatic castor-resistant prostate cancer. I'm going to talk about what are the problems with this study. Number one, the control arm is not what you would give your father. Number two, the post-protocol therapy is negligent. That's also bad. Number three, the observed PSF endpoint is quite marginal. It's nothing to write home about. Number three, part two, there's no OS benefit. Number four, spin. The authors put this through the spin cycle. It's really sort of disgusting the way they present their conclusions. Number five, what happens to the investigators? And number six, a little bit of bonus. What about high rates of censoring? What does that mean for that PFS estimate? So we'll talk about that. First of all, these are the investigators of the study. I think it's important to point out who are the people who approved this study? Who are the people who said that this is an acceptable randomized control trial to conduct? Who are the people who are getting the credit for this study? They're getting an abstract at the national meeting. They are getting the podium presentations. And these are the investigators you got to keep your eye on, all right? We'll talk about that. Here's the study design. Metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer. You had to progress already on one novel hormonal therapy like abiraterone or enzalutamide, okay? They have people with measurable extra-pelvic soft tissue metastasis, progressive metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer. These are the kinds of people in whom... You need to give them docetaxel. I mean, the standard of care for these people really is chemotherapy. Their ECOG is good. Their age is good. They're allowed prior docetaxel, but only a pittance of the people, 20% of people, have gotten it. And you're randomizing them to the two new drugs, cabozantinib and atezolizumab. Listeners should know that both of these drugs are really, really shitty drugs in prostate cancer. There's a long history of testing checkpoint inhibitors in prostate cancer, like atezolizumab. It don't work. There's a long history of cabozantinib. They were talking about that when I was a fellow. And guess what? It never came to market in prostate cancer. These are drugs that don't work that well in prostate cancer, okay? They've been failed repeatedly in randomized control trials in that setting. And they're comparing that against a negligent straw man control arm, which is giving abiraterone and enzalutamide to people who've already gotten abiraterone or enzalutamide. And they're measuring primary endpoint is PFS, and then OS is the dual primary endpoint. We'll talk about that. Number one, the control arm is inappropriate. If you have a patient like this in your clinic, you're going to be reaching for docetaxel. You might be reaching for lutetium-177 PSMA. Okay, fine. I think that's more active than this drug, than the control arm here, but I have problems with the vision study. You can go check my prior video. You might be reaching for cabazitaxel after docetaxel. You've got a lot of options that are proven to improve overall survival in randomized control trials, not just one, but multiple randomized control trials for docetaxel. Instead, you're giving them a drug that they have already progressed on that we know 
does not work that well if you've already progressed on it. Let me walk you through that. Patients who progressed on a prior novel hormonal therapy have metastatic castor-resistant prostate cancer, blah, blah, blah. You know, I talked about this. They think cabozantinib promotes an immune-permissive tumor environment. That's the kind of rhetoric that a basic scientist who's selling you a river of shit would tell you because that's just really empty rhetoric. There's actually, you know, the proof of that would be multi-arm randomized control trials showing that checkpoint inhibitors work better with CABO on board but not with CABO off board. They're not doing anything close to interrogating that claim correctly. In fact, this combination probably doesn't work at all. Likely the entire benefit is spurious. That's what I'm speculating, but I'll try to convince you that that's the case. This is from a paper that we wrote. It's called Profound, Profoundly Bad, I used to call that study. You can go check my prior plenary session podcast on that, Olaparib versus Abiraterone Enzel and people who've progressed on Abby or Enza. Quote, the control arm of abiraterone or enzalutamide, presumably whichever had not been used earlier, is suboptimal since there is substantial cross-resistance between these agents leading to poor response rates and short PFS. This is for profound, but this is perfectly relevant here too. We know that Abby does not work after Enza, okay? It's a useless drug. And when you have better alternatives, that's negligent. If your father were randomized to the control arm of this study, you would withdraw consent and pull him off that study because you'd want him to get docetaxel. So my simple ethical prerequisite to studies is if that your own mother and father were on the control arm, would you be comfortable? The purpose of a study is to have a control arm that is the best available standard of care. So much so that you feel comfortable like knowing that if your father's on the control arm, they're getting the best available proven therapy. And if they're on the experimental arm, they might be getting something better. They might be getting something worse too. And that's why we're running this study. But you can't feel like your father is getting a straw man control arm. Your father is getting purposely duped and given some lousy therapy just to eke out a trivial benefit so a company can make billions of dollars. You can't feel that. So I beg the investigators to have halted this study because they would not have enrolled their own father on this study. How can they live with themselves by enrolling other people on a study that they wouldn't enroll their own father? That to me is the crux of the issue. The commentator to this article, to this abstract, to his credit, actually states some limitations. Now, see, this is rare in oncology. Typically, they invite a discussant who's not very good at reading and appraising clinical trials so that they gloss over the limitations. Often, they're also paid by the same company running the study. But in this case, they actually brought somebody who made a few points, probably put it in a very subtle and subtle way, but this is what the, the discussant says, quote, the androgen receptor switch, in other words, giving those drugs over again, is not the best standard of care for, patient, for this patient population with measurable disease and 40% visceral metastases, okay? It's not good for this population. Docetaxel has a radiographic PFS of eight to nine months in this setting. Cabazitaxel, eight months. Post this and post docetaxel. Lutetium-177 PSMA, maybe 8.7 months we're gonna see the kind of control arm PFS we're getting. But he's saying that if you were using the best available therapy, you might expect a PFS of eight months in the control arm. But if you're using a lousy substandard unethical control arm, you might not get that. Even this gentleman from University of Chicago says, but it's the wrong control arm for this patient population. Should have been a taxane control arm. And don't tell me patients don't like chemotherapy. Cabozantinib is a chemical with real toxicity. Cabo is an awful drug. It's the drug from hell. Nobody likes Cabo. In fact, if Cabo were made by Pfizer and rather than Exalexis, it would never have come to the US market because big pharmaceutical companies abandon or jettison drugs with horrific toxicities. They don't keep pursuing them, but these small little biotech companies that are one hit wonders, they put all their eggs in one basket. They have to keep pursuing them. That's why Cariofarm keeps pursuing Selenexer. That's why Exalexis kept pushing cabozantinib, even though it's a lousy drug. And I encourage listeners to check out my paper with Griffin, Griffin Myers and Matt Vassar, which is on the entire portfolio of all the cabozantinib randomized control trials that have ever been published. I think it's out now. 
um, available for early download in the journals. Running a control arm that's beneath the best available standard of care is a common problem that this U.S. Food and Drug Administration refuses to address. They're well aware that this is a problem. In one case of nivolumab versus decarbazine, they purposely jettisoned the control arm and gave approval based on a single arm nivolumab arm. They know this is a problem, and yet they permit it in 17% of U.S. cancer drug approvals. That's what we showed in our paper in JAM Oncology in 2019 called Analysis of Control Arm Quality and Randomized Clinical Trials Leading to Anti-Cancer Drug Approval by the U.S. FDA. This U.S. FDA is not doing a good job. I've talked about on this channel, they're approving boosters based on no credible evidence, aducanumab based on no credible evidence, Exondis 57, no credible evidence, and this cancer drug is poised to be approved just like Olaparib was before it, based on profound and just like the vision trial squeaked through them, based on inadequate and flawed control arms. This FDA is no good. They are working for the benefit of the pharmaceutical firms. They're not doing what's in the best interests of patients. And ultimately, they have abdicated the social contract, which is that they have to make sure that novel drugs add upon the best available U.S. standard of care and make life better for the average American. This trial, if it leads to a change in practice and approval, as I suspect it might, will erode outcomes for people with cancer. It won't make them better. It'll make them worse. It's an example where more choice will lead to bad choices. And I'm going to argue that by the end of this video. It will lead to worse outcomes. And that is a problem that the FDA has repeatedly ignored. We showed previously the genitourinary oncologists over there on the left of the screen. They have a track record. One third of their cancer drug approvals are based on substandard control arms. They're just not good at giving the control arm that they would give their own father. They're happy to, in my opinion, compromise the validity of the study and their own ethics in pursuit of a publication. And that to me is what it boils down to and consulting agreements, etc. That beeping in the background is of course that uh, I utilize a pressure cooker to prepare food and sometimes it beeps. And you know, I'm not gonna take it out this time. I'm sick of editing videos. You're gonna get this as it is in life, okay? <laughs> this is it. So sometimes there's some beeping in the background. All right, number two. The post-protocol therapy was bad. This distorts overall survival. So even if the control arm is bad, if you give appropriate US-based standard of care post-protocol, you might actually dissipate any OS benefit. But if the only thing you're getting is a lousy control arm followed by essentially hospice, then the post-protocol therapy may, then you might even see an OS benefit, even if the drug actually is bad in the current context. So let me take a look at this. You see, that 28% of people who progressed on the control arm received docetaxel, cabazitaxel, and other chemotherapy drugs, and that was only about 20% in the experimental arm. That's a low rate of subsequent therapy. The investigator asks, or this is the discussant asks, did these patients with aggressive disease lose an opportunity to get more effective therapy? Yes, they did. Their life was being wasted progressing on a drug they've already progressed on. They had visceral disease. They needed chemotherapy desperately. They had good performance status and they were fit. They could have taken it. You withheld it. They may have deteriorated so much that somebody was scared to give it. Some people died. All the, on average, people's lives were shortened because they were enrolled in this study rather than being treated appropriately in the real world. That's so negligent. That's so negligent. Despite all this, despite punishing your control arm patients, robbing them of proven standard of care, the results are so mediocre, it's sickening how mediocre these results is. This is the overall survival. Somebody said on Twitter, there's a trend towards survival. There's no trend, the curves touch, they, they go apart. This is just absolutely null overall survival. Even when you're negligent with your control arm, your lousy, inactive drugs cannot beat the control arm. That to me is terrible, okay? Cabo, Atezo, they don't work that well in prostate cancer. Everyone knows, all right? And they don't improve overall survival even against this lousy control arm. 
PFS is the primer, it's a co-primary endpoint of the study, and they're saying it reduces the risk of death or progression by 35%. There's the old saying in oncology, if you can fit the laser pointer between the curves, you can give the plenary session. And that is what this graph looks like to me. There's very tiny difference between this two. The control arm PFS is not eight months as you would have expected had you given appropriate therapy. It's four months, which is far beneath what you would expect. And the intervention arm is only six months, which is also beneath what you would expect if you had just given docetaxel. If there was a third arm in this study of docetaxel, not only would it win PFS, it would be winning overall survival. That's how negligent this study is, okay? The control arm was four months, docetaxel, this is what the invest, this is what the discussion was trying to point out. They've been better before. Number four, spin. This is what the authors write about the study. Toxicities reported with each treatment arm were manageable. Oh, they're always manageable to the company's medical writer who's writing this. It's always manageable to them, but it's not manageable to the patient. The toxicities are terrible. Cabozantin is a drug from hell. Nobody likes it. And we showed a significant and clinically meaningful improvement in radiographic PFS in prostate cancer. That's absolute, I'm sorry to say, bullshit. That minuscule one and a half, two month improvement in radiographic PFS, who told you that's clinically meaningful? People, do they feel better? Is there a better quality of life? No. Is there a better overall survival? No. Who told you that's a meaningful benefit in radiographic PFS? Radiographic PFS is the time until the tumor reaches an arbitrary threshold of 20% growth or 20% from the nadir value or death or new lesions, whatever comes first. That is not a meaningful construct. It is a radiographic surrogate construct, and this difference is not clinically meaningful. That is nothing but spin that should not be allowed in the, in the ASCO discussions. What happens to the investigators? I mean, this is a problem that I've seen over and over again. My book, Malignant Details, there's a whole section on control arm quality. I think it was my team was the first to put this on the map. Paper that I did with Derek Tao called Control Arm control arms and randomized control trials of cancer drugs that appeared in the Lancet Oncology. Are we testing trivialities? We're the team that put this on the map. And now that we've put it on the map, at least other people have acknowledged that this is a problem in the years that's followed, but we don't actually care about that. People are happy to lavish praise on the investigators. Let me read you some things that actual GU oncologists who are supposed to be experts in this space say. Outstanding presentation, as always, by the prostate cancer master the first author of the study. Important context for contact two findings. Caboetezo versus second line NHT was studied in a highly selected population with, a, with measurable extra pelvic, blah, blah, blah. Okay, they're just summarizing what it is. An outstanding presentation. The master. It, it, are you really a master when you run an unethical study? This person writes, a great talk from the lead author presenting contact two with improved PFS even though modest difference. It's important to increase treatment options in refractory prostate cancer. No, it's not. If there's three good options that have an eight-month benefit and you add one with a six-month benefit and people switch to it, you're actually worsening outcomes for the overall pot of people. So sometimes having more options erodes outcomes. This is a talking point that the pharmaceutical industry has told you in their drug dinners that you have imbibed and you're regurgitating that you haven't thought about for 30 seconds. It's not good to have options worse than better, the options that are already there. That's just totally brain dead. And I don't know why people keep saying that. They say that because they're not thinking. This is a disgraceful thing to say in my point of view. The next person, masterful presentation. Did they, is, there, is there a memo that went out that this has to be masterful and great? Masterful presentation, blah, blah, blah. OS data immature. Couple more, fantastic news. This is this fantastic news? Well done. Strong rationale for adding CABO, which decreases T-regs. And I don't even know what MDSCs are, whatever that is. It's some immune therapy nonsense mumbo jumbo. 
There's no strong rationale for adding it because it's inferior to proven therapies. It's not fantastic news. It's actually the worst news you can imagine. And this elegant presentation by Master. There's too much use of the word master, okay? It can't be a coincidence. All right, why is everyone calling this guy the master? I've never heard of a master prostate cancer doctor, especially one who doesn't know what the standard of care is. So that to me is kind of a problem. When investigators do not provide standard of care treatment to the control arm and harm them to achieve a benefit to bring a drug company's product to market, I don't think great job. I don't think there's any masters. I think shame on you that you didn't have an ounce of courage in your short career to actually stand up for the right thing. I think shame on you. And shame on the field for elevating this to, a, to, to an oral presentation and the many, many people who commented online that this is good news and more options are always better. It doesn't make sense. You have options with eight, 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 and then I add six. How's that better? It's just going to worsen the whole average, okay? It was at eight. Now it's going to go down, okay? Use your brain, all right? Use your brain for a second, people. Come on, number six. This is the bonus. Censoring. Censoring this trial is balanced, but is it still informative? I'm going to argue it's still informative. All right. Also, don't listen to my talk and write papers, okay? I know that I know where this came from, okay? We're writing this up already, so that's one thing. All right, we're going to write this and publish in the peer review literature. So if you, if you want to read papers on your own and come up with your own ideas, but don't just take them from my talks. All right, here's what, what I noticed when I looked at this study. When you look at progression-free survival, in this randomized control trial, something jumped out at me. Number one, time point three months. At three months, it started out with 200 people at risk at the starting point, and at three months, 135 people are still at risk in the experimental arm. And I go up to that line and I draw a line there. Three months go all the way up. It looks like 20% of people to me have experienced the event of interest. Something like 80% of people are, should still be at risk, and yet there's 135 people. So let's say 200 people started, 20% experienced the event of interest, 200 people, 20% had the event, that's 40 people, 200 people minus the 40 people who had the event, you'd expect 160 to still be at risk, but there's only 135 at risk, 135 at risk. That's a difference of 25 people, and that's a censored rate of 12.5%. 12.5%, about one in six or one in seven people, non-trivial number of people are being censored at that first time point, right? What's going on there? 12.5% of people being censored that first time point. Okay, that's on the cabo arm. Why, why are these people being censored? Do they all enroll in the last three months? Hmm, no, I suspect it's because the toxicity of cabo and atezo is knocking out the frailest, most vulnerable people, and the people you've retained in that arm have a distorted upward PFS because they're the healthiest people who are the least likely to progress. I think it's an informative censoring going on here. But what about the other arm? In the other arm, there's 98 people still at risk. But if you go to the Kaplan-Meier curve at three months, it looks like 40% of people have the experience of the event of interest. So 200 people with 40% had the event of interest. That's 80 people had the event of interest. 200 minus 80 should be 120, but there's 98 people. That's a difference of 22, and that's a censoring rate of 11%. It's actually quite balanced. So someone might say that in the last two months of this, before this trial was published, 11% of people enrolled on their study. That's possible. Possible. We'll know more when they actually put out some paper. But I suspect something else happened. I suspect, and I couldn't even find, is this an open-label study? But I suspect it is an open-label study. And I suspect these 11% of people are people who withdrew consent from the trial. These are people, the reason I think it's open-label is it could have to be double-dummy study, double-dummy study design. That's a lot of money, double-dummy for this. Actually, maybe even quadruple-dummy because you need to have an Atezo dummy, you need to have a, a Cabo dummy, you need to have a Aberaron dummy, you need to have a... Enzo dummy, you know, there's a lot of dummies. So I don't think it can be totally blinded. So I think it has to be open label. Because it's open label, they know that they're getting the shitty 
unethical straw man control arm and ergo they're dropping out and this is another 11% dropping out which is about the same as a group of people dropped out in the experimental arm but I think it's different people I think it's the people who had no better options who stayed the rich people the connected people the people who had insurance who worked who went at premier centers they were the ones who dropped out to get docetaxel cabazitaxel so in one arm you're losing 12% of people but I suspect they're being lost for toxicity and those are the frailer, more vulnerable people. In the other arm, you're losing 11% of people. And I suspect those people are being lost because they're the ones who are most able and well-connected. And I actually think there's a bias in both arms. The control arm is losing the people who are doing better. And the intervention arm is losing the people who are doing worse. And that's creating a PFS benefit when none actually exists because these are inactive, useless drugs. And I think that's the whole crux of it, that there is no PFS benefit. That This is all a spurious finding, all right? Also, it's curious that the median PFS difference is within one scan interval, which also stinks, and there's, we're doing some work on that. And I think overall, this is a very problematic paper. Okay, so equal censoring, but I suspect it's still informative. It's still informative censoring. And that's the paper that we're gonna be writing very soon. Equal censoring, but still informative. We're gonna be putting out that soon. Overall, what happens when doctors run unethical trials? They get promoted in this Substack piece on sensible medicine. We talk about how literally People are being promoted here. Okay, what am I to think? What am I to think when these limitations are well-recognized and well-known that everyone knows this control arm is unethical, flawed, and you wouldn't give your own father, and yet they give it anyway. They give it anyway in pursuit of the company's glory so that Exalexis can get another notch in their belt, so that Genentech can get another notch in their belt, they can get another drug approval. I'm sorry to the person who thinks that more treatment options is always better. More treatment options can erode outcomes when those options are inferior. That's a paper written by Sonny Kim and I. We literally published that paper when more out options actually erode treatment outcomes. And so overall, I think this is literally why many people have a problem in oncology. They know that there's a lot of greed in this space and people are pushing drugs that just don't work, sucking our children's fortunes away, taking all the money from the gross domestic product to pay for these useless drugs, which don't actually benefit cancer patients. And it's entirely a financial redistribution system that takes money from everybody and puts it in the hands of elite shareholders. And all the way, the IRBs rubber stamp this, the universities rubber stamp this, they give promotions to the people involved, they get to give the oral presentation. You know, this is a broken system. And if you want to learn more about how it's broken, read the book Malignant, because I wrote that five years ago, probably, I think around five years ago was when it was actually written, it was published in 2020. And everything that people talk about today was all in that book. It's all been covered from post-protocol therapy to crossover to control arm quality, et cetera. So what can I say? If you're listening on the audio feed, you've been listening to Plenary Session Podcast. I'm gonna be back with more. And um, I gotta go actually do some real work, real patient care. You know, that's why I'm dressed up. And um, you know, this is just bad. I mean, I don't know what to say. They're just bad. Uh, nobody seems to be uh, as worked up about this as they ought to be. Uh, this is extremely problematic that people get away with this kind of malfeasance. And ultimately, patients suffer, and we all suffer because we all end up paying for this kind of thing. And it's hard to believe the investigators don't know better. It's hard to believe they don't know better when they would not be giving these control arm patients that drug if they were on the control arm. It's hard to believe the polo investigators didn't know better. It's hard to believe the profound investigators didn't know better when they had to implement enhanced trial site education, aka brainwashing. Go check my prior videos on those topics. It's hard to believe. Instead, the most plausible scenario is that people face a choice, a moral choice every day. What's best for me and what's best for society, patients, cancer, medicine, the oath I took, and they choose me you know, 99 out of 100 times. And 
Another way to choose me is when you see something unethical, you cheerlead for it. You say they're a master and they're great and it's outstanding. That's a way to promote you so that the company gives you more consulting gigs and you get more trials in the future. That's also to me spineless, jellyfish-like behavior that runs rampant in oncology. So to the young person who wants to go in oncology, I advise you, you know, find a way to keep your moral compass. Otherwise, it's going to be rotted away. There are a few people who do it. Look at Mani Moyudin. Look at Aaron Goodman. Look at Raj Chakraborty. There are a few people who keep their moral compass. Find a way to keep yours. Otherwise, you know, the road to hell is paved with abiraterone and enzalutamide after you progressed on one or the other or both. All right. Those are my thoughts. If you like this video, you know what to do. Like, subscribe, comment, leave a message below. On the Plenary Session podcast, you should subscribe to the Drug Development Letter. It's a Substack where I write some posts. Subscribe to Sensible Medicine. Subscribe to Vinay Prasad's Observations and Thoughts. I'm going to be back with a new video on the Dana-Farber fabrication. I'm getting to the bottom of that myself. We're going to be back, put that on Plenary Session. And so, uh, yeah, I'm off to do some real work here and actually try to improve patient outcomes with drugs that actually work. All right, until next time.